the World Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Hi, it's Kim and Phil with you and thanks for tuning into this episode from wherever you get your favourite pods as we introduce you to Dave Seminara, a journalist and an award-winning travel writer who has a story to tell from every place that he's visited and his topics are as varied as a missing person case in Costa Rica, competitive eating (laughs) and travelling in the footsteps of Kurt Cobain. Oh, we are about to hear a few of his stories from his latest book which is called Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of America. But it was his first book, Bed, Breakfast and Drunken Threat, Dispatches from the Margins of Europe, which became a number one bestseller in, of all places, Liechtenstein. I think I'm the only person who's ever claimed to be a bestseller in Liechtenstein. <laughs> and Malta too. Yeah, I like to, I like to include unverifiable facts and boasts <laughs> in my author profiles and bios. <laughs> I love, it. <laughs> love it. And I, I have a I have a fetish for for very small countries that no one else has written about or very few people write about. Although Malta actually has gotten a lot of press, but not the kind of stories that I wrote. Um mine was about creating a diplomatic incident with Malta when I was twelve years old and then going back there twenty five years later to try to find the person who um I offended. Hang on, what was the diplomatic near diplomatic incident then? Yes. So what happened was uh, I was twelve years old and we had a model UN exercise. Um, at our school. Now, I don't know if you do those in Australia, but, you know, each student is assigned a country and you're supposed to learn about that country and then dress up as like someone as typical costume of the way that person would dress at the Model UN. And um, I guess I was a bit of a smart ass when I was a kid because everyone else in the class got major countries that were sort of easy to research. And my teacher gave me Malta. I was the only I was the only kid. And there was only about 30 of us in the class. So there was really no need to assign countries like that. But all I had to really work with and I grew up in Buffalo, New York, was an encyclopedia. And um, the encyclopedia didn't say much about Malta. It was probably a couple of paragraphs, the one that I had access to. And it didn't say anything about how people in Malta dressed. So I went on to um, my trusty atlas and I saw, well, it's close to Libya. Wouldn't it be interesting to dress up like Muammar Gaddafi? And this was back in the, this was in the, this was in the mid 1980s when Gaddafi was the big sort of international boogeyman, you know? So I thought, okay, well, I don't know how Maltese people dress up. Why don't I just dress up in sort of Arab headdress with very dark sunglasses? Like um, I'll wear dark sunglasses and Arab headdress and give my speech like that. So what happened was um, I caught the attention of a local photographer from our, from our daily newspaper, the Buffalo News, and my picture appeared uh, in the newspaper under the term, the headline was Maltese Mock-Up, and it said, <laughs> Dave Seminara of St. Gregory the Great School representing the island nation of Malta. And um, long story short, the Maltese embassy somehow saw this news clip <laughs> of me, me dressed up like Gaddafi but representing Malta. And they were apparently not pleased about this at all because I got a letter, believe it or not, from the office of the Prime Minister of Malta. Remember, uh, I was 12 years old and I received this letter. The school actually received the letter because they didn't have my home address. And um, it was basically, it was a scathing letter, especially being the the person who wrote it, who was um, the personal secretary of the person who was at the time the Prime Minister of Malta. He was writing to a 12-year-old boy and there was all kinds of exclamation points and underlines, and it said, this is not how we dress in Malta, and you have grossly misrepresented us. And there were even a few weird conspiracy theories in there, too, as though this was some sort of an American plot. You know, long story short, um, 
this letter was forwarded to the State Department, and then the State Department eventually <laughs> sent me sent me a letter. The office, the the Maltese desk officer at the State Department, which is a very lonely post, I can tell you, <laughs> yes. um, having worked having worked at the State Department, sent me a letter saying, "Well, don't worry about it, young man, and we we encourage you to pursue a career in diplomacy." Now, why they why they would have recommended that for someone who had created such an undiplomatic this, incident? I this don't explains know. a lot. But, <laughs> but twenty but twenty years later, I did become a diplomat, and then several years after that, um, I had a chance to travel to Malta, and I thought, you know, I always like to travel with a purpose. This is one of my things as a traveler that I do. I don't like to go to a place with no preparation and just show up like, oh, okay, what do I do? I don't look on TripAdvisor. What I like to do is I like to have a purpose for my travel and to think about what interesting people could I meet or what interests could I pursue. And when I was going to Malta, I was going to be there on a cruise and I had only one day. And I thought, what am I going to do with my one day in Malta? And I thought, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to find this guy who wrote me the letter. I brought the letter with me and also a book that the guy sent me. The guy sent me a book about Malta along with this gate and letter saying, here, this is please learn something about Malta. This is what we really are like. <laughs> And um, this was about six or seven years ago. And I thought, I'm going to find this guy. Malta is a small country. It can't be that difficult, right? And it was, a, it was a, just a wonderful quest. I spent the day uh, bouncing all around um, the capital, Valletta, trying to find this gentleman. And I, and I wrote all about this, this story in my first book, which is called Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, Dispatches from the Margins of Europe. But um, I did not end up finding him that day because he'd moved. I, I actually tracked down his house and I went to the house and his neighbor said, oh, Mario, the guy's name was Mario. Mario moved a few months ago and he'd moved to the other side of the island and my boat was about to depart. So I didn't get to meet him. That was the bad news. However, I wrote an article about my quest to find him and through my website, about six months later, he contacted me. And we struck up, believe it or not, the weirdest friendship, I think, that's ever been known to man. We, we began to correspond about once a month together for a period of about five or six years. But then, uh, and I was supposed to meet him in Malta, and it never ended up happening because he died last year. So it's sort of a sad ending to a very interesting story. All right. Well, this takes us to Lichtenstein. <laughs> That's very hard to yeah. say. So how are you a best-selling yeah. author in Lichtenstein? Oh, help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lichtenstein. So yeah. basically, I should um, say, Kim, in, in, in fairness, you only have to sell two copies of your book which is precisely the number that I sold there. And it did, that did vault me to number one on their charts. Again, this is another case of going to a country and having a great uh, you know, interest to pursue. Several years ago, I wrote a story about the oldest and youngest participants in the Davis Cup, which Davis Cup, for those who aren't tennis fans, is like the soccer's version of the World Cup. All the different countries participate. And I wrote a story about the oldest and youngest participants. Now, the oldest guy who was ever in the Davis Cup was a guy from Togo, who participated when he was 60 years old, basically, because he was supposed to be the coach, but one of his players uh, overslept his alarm clock. And so this guy, he was down one player, so he had to play at age 60. The youngest was a 14-year-old from Lichtenstein. This guy's name was Kenny Banzer. Well, he and I, um, after I profiled him, we stayed in touch. He would send me letters occasionally and say, hey, you know, you should come to Lichtenstein. And then, you know, one day when I had an opportunity to do so, of course, I gave him a heads up and said, hey, Kenny, I'm finally coming to your country and I would love to uh, 
to get together with you. So I had a personal um, host to sort of show me around the place. It's th there's 37,000 people who live there, ordered by Austria and Switzerland, and they don't have their own currency. They do use the Swiss franc. It's an extremely interesting little country. You are super interesting. A diplomat, a journalist, a self-diagnosed pathological traveler. And Phil mentioned the word gonzo journalism. Yep. And I know in the book that uh, we're giving away a couple of copies of, Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of the American Americas. You mentioned Hunter S. Thompson in that book. Would you call yourself a gonzo journalist? No, I wouldn't. I mean, actually, I don't really even actually even like to call myself a journalist. I don't know whether I used that word on the back cover of the book or not. But if I did, I think maybe I'd like to change that because I really I really consider myself to be a traveler first and foremost. And that is, you know, if you ask me about various different identities that I have, the one that's most important to me is 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 being a traveler, because that's that is my real passion. And um, writing is, a, is a, I, I find, is it combining writing and traveling is ideal for me because it gives me a good excuse to, to meet people and to pursue and to find more interesting off the radar places that aren't in guidebooks. It's better than just basically trying to, to strike up conversations with strangers on a bus, although I do that, although I do that too. Yeah, well, you do say in the, in the book, you kick it off with the common thread in the stories in the collection is that you reflect your obsession with finding sites between the sites. You let your curiosity guide you. And you basically said that as we opened up the chat. I do let my curiosity guide me. And what I do before I go to places is I try to think about, I mean, I have a few different passions that I'm interested in. Uh, regardless of where I travel. Like, for example, there's a section in the book with several stories about visiting medicine men and traditional healers. Really, you know, there's some interest that you can really only pursue in certain countries, right? I mean, you're not going to, if you're interested in, uh, you know, in seeing gorillas, then Saskatchewan's not going to be the, the place. There's certain interests, like, for example, medicine men and traditional healers. You can pursue that interest in many different countries around the world, and I have. That's a, actually a touchy uh, topic for many of our travelers, world nomads travelers, especially around the mm -hmm. ayahuasca uh, ritual in South America. Have right. You, have you been and studied right. that one? No, no, no. So I, I'm not so interested in, in, in sort of that sort of psychedelic medicine. You know, I know some people are just interested in like the tripping sort of experience yeah. and I'm not really into that. I have had some health problems in my life and actually the, you know, when I consult traditional medicine men, I'm actually interested in in people who heal specific conditions and such and who have in practice traditional medicines not not so much just like hey let's let's go someplace and you know get high or yeah. or, or go tripping I'm, I'm not as interested in that stuff okay well let's pick apart a few of the stories wow. nudists sure. on orcas island oh yeah this is a this is a great place well orcas island first of all is part of the san juan islands group which is about, let's say, if you if you go to Seattle, you drive a couple of hours up to a place called Anacortes, and then you take a ferry of about an hour and a half or so, and then you come to the San Juan Islands. And uh, Orcas Island is one of those uh, islands, I would argue probably the most beautiful one. And there's a place called Doe Bay there. When I say Doe Bay, it's, you think about, you know how Homer Simpson says, Dow! Yeah, yeah. Well, it's spelled, it's, spelled, it's spelled just like that, D. <laughs> But except DOE. So think about Homer Simpson when you think about it. But it's a great place that has a number of thermal baths. And um, it's, uh, it's considered clothing optional. And although we found out when we were there, and I was there, by the way, with my wife and my two little boys. My, my, my sons right now are 10 and 12 years old, and they travel with me to a lot of the adventures that I profile in these two books. These kids have come with me. And at the time, they were probably more like eight and 10. So we weren't, you know, purposely seeking out a nudist resort or anything, you know, sort of of that nature. But um, I did hear that the place was clothing optional. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> we'll find out what that's all about. 
And uh, Dobe, it turns out to be a really interesting place. And most of the people actually do end up going into the baths without clothing, which was an interesting experience for me because I'd never been to that sort of place before. And and I don't know if, if you folks are very familiar with the Pacific Northwest too, but it's also pretty much the crunchiest sort of most liberal part of our country. You know, it's really sort of a freewheeling place. And um, it's the kind of place too where I guess, you know, um, you know, people are not as obsessed about body image and, and people are, I guess I would say less scrupulous about uh, about shaving, a lot of beards, a lot of uh, bodily hair, uh, people of all different shapes and sizes and everyone, you know, nobody feeling, you know, sort of ashamed of themselves and all. It's a, it's a, it's a great place. I had a lot of fun there. Hey, what's the etiquette when you're getting into the thermal pool nude? <laughs> I'm probably the wrong person to ask that question to because I was one. I was wondering the same thing when I was there, and I can tell you only. I can only tell you what I observed. I don't know what the proper etiquette is, but I can yeah. tell you what I observed, and that's that if you go into a hot tub full of nude people with a swimsuit on, yeah. you will get some strange. You will get some strange looks. So I guess what I what I found from the etiquette was there's a number of different pools at this place of varying temperatures. If you want to go in a in a, in a pool with a swimsuit on look for one of the pools where there's at least one other person actually wearing a swimsuit. <laughs> and, and the same goes the other way as well, too, that if you're, if you're you know, going around naked, it's probably better to find you know, uh, one of the pools that has other naked people. What I saw was that um, people definitely did not, it, the weather wasn't warm enough for people to be strolling nude from their, uh, this, these are cabins that this place has. Yeah. People were not strolling nude from their cabin right into the uh, into the tubs because the weather wasn't warm enough. It's the Pacific Northwest, so it never really gets too hot. Yeah. So people either had on ro- robes or towels or whatever, and then they, you know, there were like hooks and stuff like that near the <laughs> near the tubs that where people would disrobe right before getting in, basically. Dave, you talk about being on the margins. I like to call the margins fringe because things get a little bit frayed out on the fringe, don't they? You know, I guess it sort of depends. What do you have in mind? Tell me what you mean. Oh, well, I mean, you really sort of, I mean, there isn't really a normal, is there? You know, the the idea that we're all the same and isn't really true. Everybody's got, you know, some sort of strange thing going on or what I like to call their own private revolution going on inside of their head. And you seem to be, you know, love going and finding those, like the nudist colony and, and the bathing there and the, and it's the title of the book. So, you know, Breakfast with Polygamists. I should explain that, shouldn't I? Yeah, go on. <laughs> sure. So one of the stories in the book is called uh, Muffins for Polygamists. And, and what that's all about was uh, when I was in Utah uh, about six years ago, um, I had you know done a little bit of research. Obviously, Utah is it's famous in the U.S. for a lot of different things, but probably most well-known for having um, the largest number of polygamous uh, families in the country. I think the estimate was about 10 years ago, there was an estimate that there was about thirty five to 40,000 polygamous families uh, living in Utah. And I thought, you know, when I started researching this before going to Utah, I stumbled across an article about a place called Rockland Ranch, which is very close to Canyonlands National Park. But you would never, ever, ever find this community unless you were specifically looking for it. It's off on a dirt road, on a dead end road. And um, it's quite an interesting community. There's about 20 polygamous families there who are living inside what are essentially like cave homes they've blasted into. Imagine these huge sandstone rocks that are let's say maybe a hundred, I'm sorry, I'm not good with metric system, but they're probably a hundred feet high. I think of these towering, enormous, uh, really pretty uh, sandstone colored, enormous rocks. And they blasted about 20 homes all around the side of this enormous rock. And um, most of the 20 families in this community are polygamous. And uh, I had read 
about this community and saw photos of it. And I thought, wow, I'm going to be in Canyonlands National Park. I would really love to meet some of the families from this community while I'm there. So um, I found this woman whose name is Ann Wild, who's, you guys know what a fixer is, right? Yep. Journalists rely, rely upon fixers to sort of hook them up with different connections in different places. And I had read uh, from, heard from another journalist, there's a woman in Salt Lake City named Ann Wild, who's sort of like a polygamy fixer. She's a polygamist who is trying to counter negative uh, stereotypes about polygamy in the media. And, and by doing that, she's willing to hook journalists up with people who are polygamists from different communities. And I asked Anne whether she knew anybody in Rockland Ranch, and by chance she did. I set an appointment to meet these folks, and I found myself, I was staying in a town called Moab, which Moab is maybe 30, 45 minutes away from this community. And Moab is a, is a really cool place, but it's also quite trendy as well, too. So I found myself one the morning that I was set to meet these people at a very uh, trendy sort of artisanal bakery in Moab, and I, I thought, well, I'm going to bring them. It's breakfast time when I'm meeting them. So I think I'll bring them some muffins. And just as I was about to order, now these were muffins, which were 3 or $4 each because they were, you know, it's a trendy little bakery. And then as I was about to order, I remembered, my goodness, these people have 13 children. There's two wives in the family, a husband and 13 kids. So I thought, well, how many muffins is it? politically, you know, is, is the yeah. correct number to buy for a family of 16. And I thought I did a quick math and we're like, no, 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 I don't think I have a budget to spend $60 on muffins this morning. That's how the name of the story came about. But I did actually travel out to their community and I did have breakfast with this huge family. And I got a chance to understand a little bit about their side of the story. Uh, I had a, a very, you know, interesting day with this family coming in the foster family. And after I wrote my story about them and their community, I started getting contacted like crazy by all sorts of producers of reality TV shows who wanted me to introduce them to this foster family. So I kept getting contacted by producers saying, will you introduce me to them? We want to get them on TV. And they kept saying, no, 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 no. We're not interested. We don't want publicity. And then about uh, a year ago, one day, my wife and I were looking on Netflix and I saw her face, Lillian Foster's face. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's Lillian Foster. What is she doing? And it turned out that she changed her mind. And uh, there's a television program called Free Wives and One Husband. And it profiles uh, some of the families in this Rockland Ranch community that I visited. Now, that is a guy who would be super entertaining at a dinner party. Yep. Now, to win a copy of Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of America, yep. join our Facebook group. There'll be a link in show notes. And tell us your wackiest travel story. Ooh. The two judge the best will win. And if you want to get in touch with us in general, you can email us at podcast at worldnomads.com. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we're off to Bonnie, Scotland. Wow. Amazing, Amazing. Moments. Be inspired.